This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey there, Duke fans. Welcome to episode 172 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. I'm your host this week. I'm Jason Evans. Yes, I sound worse than usual because I'm on the phone, because AT&T U-verse has decided to not provide me with any internet at home or any TV at home. I'm not a fan of U-verse at the moment. They say they'll fix it on Tuesday. It is currently Sunday, and I'm suffering from information withdrawal. But I can still get out my phone. I can still call in and do the podcast along with my partners in crime in Washington, D.C., Donald Wine. Donald, what's going on in your world? Uh, I just got back from a nice, lovely weekend in Miami. It was homecoming down there, um, and I was visiting some friends. But more importantly, Jason, I'm sorry to hear about your U-verse troubles, but luckily for you, it's not Comcast, because if it was, you'd never get anything back. Yes, this is true. And, well, and the, the other nice thing is before U-verse conked out on me, they at least let me get the ACC Network um, game, the Colorado State game that Duke played the other day. So I'm thankful for that. I'm also joined, as always, in Durham, North Carolina, our resident Blue Devil, Sam Klein. Sam, what's going on there in uh, Durham Town? As far as I know, no internet problems, no, no particular problems of any kind. I was able to attend, uh, let's see, most of the unfortunate Duke-Notre Dame game on Saturday night. I was also at the Duke-Colorado State basketball game on Friday so I've got some scenes from Cameron to relay but but it was a I'd say it was an, a mostly expected weekend I, I didn't 
think Duke was going to get beat so bad by Notre Dame, but basketball wise, I'd say I'm feeling pretty good right now. Yeah. How, how is it possible not to feel good? By the way, um, before we get to recapping the games, I want to, as always, thank our sponsor, the good, the great guys at Bird Campbell, the uh, business law firm. If you're in uh, Texas or Florida, look them up if you have any legal needs. And after that, I will now get to the games because we want to talk about basketball. The Blue Devils are back on the court playing real games that matter, that people are watching and paying attention to. And, of course, it all starts with Kansas. After the Kansas game, we played Colorado State. Guys, before we recap those games, I want to ask a couple big questions that specifically relate to what you've seen from Duke so far. It may seem out of order to do this before we do the, the game recaps, but um, this, I'm in charge, and this is the way I'm going to roll. Because I think there's a really interesting question that, um, that comes up after the first two games that Duke has played this year, and it is simply this. Who is Duke's second best player? Everyone knows that Trey Jones is the best player on the team, but who is Duke's second best player? Because I've asked a few other Blue Devil folks. I know how I feel myself, and the, rela- the, the answer is one that a few weeks ago would have seemed absolutely shocking. But, Sam, I'll put it to you first. Who do you think is Duke's second best player? I think that there are, before I give an answer, I'd say there are three guys who, to me, have seemed sort of up to the task for good chunks of games so far, which are Matthew Hurt, Vernon Carey, and Cassius Stanley. Of those three... can, yeah. can, can I add, I think Alex O'Connell belongs in that mix with them. Sure. I, yeah, I yeah, said sorry. to myself, I had four candidates, and those okay. four are the candidates. I, I think that's fair. Sorry. I uh, uh, Even of those, I would say Cassius Stanley has seemed the most uh, versatile so far of, of those guys. Trey Jones is, as you said, Trey Jones is still the best player on the team. He's That was what we expected. He's not the best shooter on the team, but he is by far the most composed on defense. He He gets in other point guard shorts as easily as anybody and is is a very capable ball handler and, and can see the court really well. I've been most impressed with Cassius Stanley so far at his, we knew that he was athletic. I think his being able to use that athleticism, particularly on the defensive end to create turnovers and, and to create fast breaks has been more, much more than I expected. And his offensive game is, is much more developed than I thought it was going to be. He came in as a recruit who I think the reputation and the ranking would tell us that he was athletic but raw and that he came on late to Duke. So not that that has much of a transition issue um, necessarily. He, he still came on campus at the same time as everyone, but he committed late. And so I think we we maybe undersold him. But so far, he's been my second most impressive player. And I I trust him a lot more than I expected to this early in the season. Donald, your turn. What's your answer? Who do you think has been the second best player for Duke? Well, I think I agree with Sam when in, in saying that it's Cassius Stanley. That has played well so far. And, and really, like Sam said, his athleticism on both ends of the court, he's all over the place. His motor is all over the place. And he, you could tell that he has he plays with a, a chip on his shoulder, but it's not in a, it's in a different way. He plays like he has something to prove every game so far. And, and I think that is why he's been – so successful so far he's put that energy and emotion into every asset of his game and it shows and even when he makes a big play he wants to up himself and do it again on the next on the next possession so uh, i really like what i what i have seen from him so far before the season i always said that 
I thought that Matthew Hurt was the most ready to play. But Cassius Stanley, I think, has taken that title first uh, through those first two games. Uh, so uh, I'll make it three for three, and I, I will freely admit that, like I said, I asked a few other Duke fans about this, and they all agree with us, and they all say Cassius Stanley has been Duke's second best player. And Jason, the thing that Jason, pressed, yeah, Jason. The, the one yeah. thing about this question is, it, it's a leading question. Um, we we all knew the answer, and, and here's the thing: as you guys know, I'm an attorney. And one of the things you learn in law school is if you're going to ask a leading question, make sure you know what the answer is going to be. So kudos to you for leading us with a question that you knew what the answer is going to be. Can I, can well, I make I, a callback? Wait, Jason, go, just going back one week ago to our, to our stats predictions, we had yeah. collectively Cassius Stanley, we had predicted for none of the, of the leading stats mm-hmm. all yeah. <laughs> across all the things we picked. He, we, we didn't have him for anything. Um, and, yeah, and, 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 and there's point, a chance it, it would, yeah, it would not be shocking if he led the team in scoring at this point, scoring I, blocks, I, you know, scoring blocks and or steals are all possible for him. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, I mean, it's been, a, it's been, I've been so impressed with him. Um, and, and I guess what surprised me, uh, you guys alluded to this has been the offense. Uh, it feels like he plays, um, almost in spurts on offense, like something happens good for him. And then you can go like, okay, well, for the next two minutes, he's going to be the best player on the floor. Because um, he, you know, he's gotten his scoring in bunches. He gets out. He's going to, his play with Trey Jones has been so impressive because Trey's always got his head up looking for the guy going down floor. And Cassius Stanley, there was a moment in the Kansas game where, um, where, where Trey got, uh, I want to say it was a rebound or something, and Cassius was basically even with three Kansas guys. And Trey threw the ball between one Kansas guy's legs to Cassius with a crazy bounce pass that there probably maybe one other player in college basketball can make that bounce pass. And Cassius was like instantly three steps ahead of these Kansas guys. He's so fast. And I, I just, I, I've, I've been shocked by how well he's played so far. And it, it leads me to the second question I wanted to ask you guys, and I promise we're going to get to our Kansas recap soon. <laughs> but the second question I wanted to ask is, what do you think is Duke's best lineup? I mean, one of the hallmarks of, of the play so far has been that Coach K is experimenting with a lot of different lineups. A lot of guys are getting playing time, um, which we kind of expected. We predicted early in the year that we would see a lot of players playing a lot. But what do you think is the, like, you know, we're in a one-point game with Carolina in the final three minutes. Who are the five guys, admittedly we're only two games in the season, who are the five guys you think should be on the floor Donald, I'll start with you on this one. You know, this is difficult, and I think it's difficult, too difficult to do in the first couple games. But if you, you know, did it right now, I would say probably Trey Jones, Cassius Stanley, um, Jack White, Matthew Hurt, and maybe Alex O'Connell. Um, And I think that's basically just if if I'm looking for that play that you mentioned – you know, down two against UNC or even up two against UNC late in the game, I want the energy on lineup out there the the one that i know that has the the youth and experience to get the job done on that one possession that one play that's going to define that game and i think those five right now are the guys that we could probably do it with donald i would damn your turn your yeah yeah, i would i would take that lineup and sub out uh jack white for vernon carey just because i think that you would and maybe that would depend on are we down or are we up because right. Vernon yeah, Carey is going to bring the offense, offense and defense. exactly. Yeah. I would be subbing. I would be subbing between Jack White and Carey. And honestly, you could even talk me into 
switching around Jack White and Javin Delorier on defense because I think that that Delorier brings more of that defensive versatility, and I want to see more of of how Matthew Hurt plays with each of the other bigs or notional bigs. Like I don't think we consider Jack White a, a, a traditional big, but if we think of White, Delorier, Carey, and Hurt as being the the four and five rotation, I want to see Matthew Hurt play with all of those guys more to know sort of what the best defensive situation is. Because I think he has, you know, Coach K talked about it, but Matthew Hurt has a lot of potential on the defensive end that I don't think he's shown us yet. And and that's I think he's going to get a lot better on that side. But who does he who does he sort of work the best with, uh, particularly as we start playing bigger teams? Um, Kansas had size and and Duke was able to, like we talked about, neutralize Azubuki a little bit. Uh, but I want to see more of of that defensive rotation, especially from the bigs. Uh, so I'll say that, that my five were Trey, Alex O'Connell, Cassius Stanley, Matthew Hurt, and I went with Carey. I, I was like, could be white, but I, I went ahead and I went with Carey um, just because I wanted a little more uh, inside punch and a little more athleticism. And I feel like um, between Trey and Alex O'Connell, we've got a decent bit of experience on the floor. But, you know, the bottom line is it probably depends. Do I need a stop or do I need a bucket? Um, and Jack White, if I need a stop, is going to be there. If I need a bucket, it's probably Kerry. Hey, one last thing I want to mention on Cassius Stanley um, uh, before we get to the Kansas recap. Uh, so one of the things that was really intriguing to me about him that I happened to notice and I looked up, um, he is really old for a freshman. He's already 20. Um, he will be legally buying drinks before Zion and RJ are buying drinks. He's only a couple months younger than Alex O'Connell and Jordan Goldwire, who are juniors. So even though Cassius Stanley is a freshman, um, you know, and he's a guy who, who doesn't have a lot of NBA draft stock at the moment, most of the NBA draft folks are, you know, do not have him going, um, coming out early or, or going in the first or second round. That may start to change if he, if he keeps on playing this way. I think part of the reason why is that he doesn't have that huge potential label because despite being a freshman, He's the age of a junior, um, but I got no problem with that at all. I love the idea of having Cassius Stanley for a few years. Oh, absolutely. I mean, how, how could you not after the, you know, the energy that he provides? You want that on a team, and honestly, I, I feel like he's going to be the type of guy that as we go throughout the season, and even if, you just, you know, if we're fast-forwarding to next year or the year after, he's going to get better every single game, and that that – potential that upside may not be there but if he's going to get better with every single game and he's going to bring that energy every single night that is Duke basketball and that's what we've grown accustomed to over the years and that's going to be something that's really going to be beneficial for future future games and future teams if I want to think about a similar player to Cassius Stanley at this point I'd be thinking of late freshman year Grayson Allen you know obviously very bouncy um plays the plays the two next to a really capable point guard probably not the guy you want handling the ball you know that was one of the issues that Grayson had sort of in his sophomore and junior seasons was having the ball in his hands too much uh but with a Trey Jones next to you or a or a Tyus Jones or a or a Quinn Cook um a guy like Stanley like Allen is really going to be able to thrive with Trey as you pointed out Jason finding um finding seams for him to to get the ball into tight spaces so that Stanley can be athletic. Uh, that That's the, that's, I think the best comp. And so if, if we're seeing him, like Donald was saying, if, if we're seeing him progress throughout the season, if he turns into early sophomore year, Grayson Allen, by the end of the year, then we are going to love watching him 
uh, on a nightly basis. Okay, wait. Are we playing a new game? Are we playing the Who Does Cassius Stanley Remind You Of game? Yeah. I'm going Dante Jones if that's the game. I'm, Ooh, I, all right. Think, we'll, we'll, we'll throw it back a little farther. I like that. Wait, he hasn't dunked on anybody I, yet I like done push-ups. <laughs> oh, Cassius seems like the type who will oh, push he up would. all over you. <laughs> he oh, needs, yeah. Donald, get, who you got? What's your comparison for Cassius? Um, you know what? I like the uh, I like the Grayson Allen early sophomore year comparison. Just like – he's he's being asked to do not that much, but he's going to take that anyway. And I think the progression, if he does that, and if he, like like Sam said, if he's going to be sophomore year Grayson Allen uh, by the end of the year, then uh, we should be a number one seed in the tournament and one of the likely favorites to win it all because he is that good. So uh, assignment for our listeners out there, email us at dbrpodcast, dbrpodcast at gmail.com. Tell us who you think Cassius Stanley reminds you of, and yes, I understand he's the first Cassius. He's not the second. A, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying it's kind of fun to think a little bit about this stuff. Guys from Duke history, who does Cassius Stanley remind you of? We'd love to hear from people. Email us with any comment or any question you may have. Um, Thomas we'd love Hill. To answer those is it things. is it Thomas Hill? <laughs> I, I no, it, Thomas Hill wasn't the athlete, and and wasn't and Cassius isn't the shooter that Thomas was. I think it's 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 guys who are crazy good athletes who are somewhat raw but developing offensively. Yeah, I, I don't think we've had a flyer like him since since Dante Jones. I think that's a good, you know, Allen's in that group. Um, um, Rashid Suleiman was supposed to be in that group, I would say. But uh, I think Dante Jones is also a, a, an interesting one. All right, guys, as promised, I apologize for all the diversions at the beginning. We did kind of a overarching thing at the start. Usually you would wait later on, but instead I decided to do it at the start, and, and that's because I wanted to now get to the Kansas game. Uh, Duke versus Kansas in the Champions Classic, number three versus number four. Uh, a, a very exciting game, not a high-scoring game, not a, uh, not a piece of basketball aesthetics that you might look at and really admire, but – when you win, you win, and that's what counts. Duke gets the victory over Kansas um, in a game where Duke seemed in control, and then Kansas came back, and then Duke came back. Um, but, uh, you know, a, a huge victory for the Blue Devils over a very, very well-respected team, an, exper- an incredibly experienced team for a young club like Duke. This was fabulous that we got this win. Uh, Donald, let me go to you first. Give me your observations. What are the things you saw in this game that make you so excited, and what are the things that give you pause? Well, I was at this game on on Tuesday night, so it was. Uh, I will say first, the atmosphere was weird. It was. It was. I feel like the entire crowd was frustrated because, as you guys saw, it was a very sloppy game uh, on both sides. It was an exciting game, but it was one that was obviously like you could tell that both teams had not played another team in basketball yet this season. So, or at least for for uh, for, for for real. So. I think when it comes to this game, the one thing I'm going to start with is the defense. Uh, the defense was spectacular throughout the game, and that was the one thing that was consistent for Duke. Uh, we had 28 turnovers. We had 11 steals. You know, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, that just, you know, those sort of things are what kept us in the game. And I'll point to two possessions that really, I think, changed the course of the game and really got it so that this team could sense 
that they had the tools to win it. And it was in the second half. It was two possessions in a row where we got 20, where we got 30 second uh, shot clock violations on Kansas. And it wasn't that Kansas was, you know, getting close to the basket. They were stifled in every sense of the form in those two possessions. But when you saw the bench react, when you saw the crowd react, the team looked like they knew that they could just, if they could ride on that defense and just convert a couple times on offense, that they would walk away with this ball game. And that's what happened. Um, we talked about Cassius Stanley uh, in the last segment about how good he's emerged. He had two dunks in a row, uh, including the one, Jason, that we talked about where uh, Trey Jones basically threw the ball kind of Zion-esque, if you will, through, uh, through three defenders and found a Cassius Stanley who was streaking down the wing, who jammed it home, sent him into a TV timeout uh, uh, break. And this sort of thing is what we want to see because last year, I feel like with some of these games that were close like this, we didn't win. We couldn't find the, the basket. We couldn't get the stop on defense. This time we did. And I think it was, you know, excellent defense down the stretch by Jack White, Trey Jones, Jordan Goldwire, I thought had pretty good defense despite the fact that he uh, did not score a point um, during the game. His defense was very, very good uh, during this night. And it was very needed, especially down the stretch when we needed stop after stop after stop when we weren't getting baskets on the other end. Uh, Sam, uh, what did you hey, think let, about let it? Let me. Well, I was going to say, uh, Sam, let me put this question to you, Sam, really quick, because uh, we're all talking about defense. Of course we are. Kansas had 28 turnovers. And to me, some of the story coming out of this game was, oh, Kansas was sloppy. Kansas couldn't hold on to the ball. It was just awful. Sam, do you feel like how much of that was Kansas? How much of that was Duke? Because to me, it wasn't like Duke was sitting back in a zone, not guarding anybody, and Kansas was throwing the ball into the stands with, you know, with no provocation. I thought Duke's defense contributed to a lot of those turnovers. Yeah, I think you saw there was some element of Kansas being sloppy, but you saw a lot of that hectic traditional Duke defense on Tuesday night. Uh, The freshmen appear to be doing, you know, one of the things that that Coach K loves in his players when they play defense is that they're all yelling at each other. They're they're shouting out switches and and coverages and, and changes in the setup. So. I think we saw a lot of that on Tuesday and they were getting in passing lanes. Guys like Matthew Hurt and Cassius Stanley, I think looked more comfortable on defense than we anticipated they would. And they were creating a lot of that havoc. So I, I think it was more Duke than Kansas, especially relative to what the national conversation has been. That being said, Kansas looks like they are still obviously very talented and probably more talented than Duke. If you add up everybody, but they're also figuring themselves out. They're they're reintroducing Azubuki. They're um, they're bringing on some new guys as well. So uh, you know, I'm not going to give Duke full credit for it, but it was much more impressive than I anticipated it being. And I don't remember what the what the over under was on this game, but I imagine that it was higher than than where it ended up because, like you said, it was sort of a it was sort of a sloppy affair from both sides. Duke missed a lot of shots and didn't quite have a, an offensive identity even late into the game when they made that little comeback in the second half. Yeah, I, I, guarantee, I don't know what the over-under was. I guarantee, uh, I, I want to say it was like 144, 146, but uh, I, the two teams combined to score uh, was a 134, 68 to 66. They're, they're, that, you'll never see a Duke over-under, maybe against Virginia and their slow pace. You'll never see a Duke. Are we gonna under. Are we gonna talk about Virginia? Oh God! Well, in a minute. No, in a minute. Let's not. Let's not. <laughs> <laughs> All 
Um, no, I, I wanted to talk very briefly about the Duke offense. I mean, we've, we've raved about the defense and, you know, a game that you win 68 to 66, you probably won on your defense and, and that's what Duke did. But ugh, this Kansas game, I was, we took a lot of bad shots. Most of them contested shots in the lane on the move where we had very little chance of it going in. I mean, that kind of stuff can be fixed, you know, especially when you watch it on tape, you like look at yourself and you go, Jesus, did I really attempt that shot? That's a terrible shot. But um, uh, there were some other things that gave me a lot of cause for concern. One thing that bothered me was I thought Trey Jones didn't make great decisions. I mean, I was expecting his passing and his creativity in the half court to, you know, to, to result in a lot more easier baskets. He had a decent number of assists, but um, I, I felt a, a friend of mine, James Volts, this is just a great line. He was writing after the game, and he said that Trey Jones – you guys are going to love this line. He said, Trey Jones has driven into the middle of nowhere without a plan more frequently than Jesse and Walt did in five seasons of Breaking Bad, which I thought was Ouch. really funny. That is uh, – <laughs> that's harsh. But, but accurate, I think. I mean, Trey – I know it's the first game of the season. It, it felt to me like Trey was meandering around a little bit, and then the free throw shooting, and Donald – Hats off to you. I think, if I recall correctly, you were talking about free throw shooting a lot in the preseason. If Duke had lost this game, I would have been having nightmares about us missing free throws for a month. Um, I'm mm-hmm. fairly sure I, we blew at least two front ends of one-and-ones. Um, Vernon Carey and Javin Delorier were just terrible free throw shooters in this game. The whole team, we, we, you know, we did not look confident at the line, and, and it showed in the statistics um, and then the other thing is, I, I do want to talk, you know, the one positive was um, the outside shooting, even though, you know, it wasn't like we scorched the nets for 50% or anything like that. Um, I, I feel like the outside shooting gave me uh, a lot of confidence that this team's going to be able to be a much better outside shooter than we were last year. Um, Vernon Carey, stepping out and, and, and draining a couple of them. Um, you know, shows that you are absolutely going to have to cover him wherever he is on the floor. That was great to see. Um, and, yeah, uh, you know, Carrie, and, and by the coming, way, Jason, yeah, Carrie, by the way, blowing through our expectations on on three pointers made this season. I might, I might yeah, win that has, one. Yeah. Who has the I, high on that? I think one? I had, Donald, do you have the high? I think it was me with, it was, I think it was me with like eight. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think, I, I'm I think I'm pretty had, good about you're getting a point there. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, <laughs> I, I definitely didn't expect that. So good job, Donald. I think the one thing I think the one thing about you're talking about the three point shooting. There's one thing that I saw from this game that I think will be uh, interesting to see how we adjust going forward, and that's Matthew's hurt shooting. I think when he's a set shooter and he's like sitting on the wing or in the corner, he gets the shot is going in. But when he had to dribble or kind of create a three point shot, it wasn't as successful. And he went three for seven against. uh, against Kansas. But I think most of those uh, shots that he made, even the, the field goal attempts, most of the shots that he made were set shots that were, you know, someone drawing the defense and then kicking out to him. So that's going to be very important going forward. I want to see if Matthew Hurt is going to be the type of guy who can create a shot on the wing or it's going to be something where Coach K sets up plays where he's in the corner or on the wing where he can just catch and shoot. I, I love his form. I just mm-hmm. – I could watch Matthew Hurt shoot – all day long. Uh, I, I think his form looks so, so, so good. And I, I feel like there are going to be games. There's going to be a game at some point this year where Matthew Hurt is 
five of six or even like six or seven of eight or nine from three. I'm telling you, that's going to happen at some point this year, and we're going to blow some of the doors off because when Duke scores, defense never goes away, as Virginia has shown us the past couple of years. So when Duke has games where, where we score, teams are just going to be like, okay, forget it. we got no chance here. Um, all right, Jason. So now that you're talking about Matthew Hurt and his and his shooting prowess – Give me a Duke player that he reminds you of, because I am I'm trying to think of one, and I don't know if my I don't know if I've got a good one. I got one, Michael right. Dunleavy Jr. Oh, I like that. Okay, this is as soon as he committed. That's exactly who I thought of when he when I saw his game. It's is that versatile? He could go inside and go outside. He can shoot. He you know he's pretty good at you know free throw line theoretically. I haven't seen him go to the line that much, but that sort of thing. It, it, his game is specifically Michael Dunleavy, 100%. But he's got a little bit more size. Like I think of Dunleavy mm-hmm. as being a wing player. And I think of Matthew Hurt as being a like traditional college four in the NBA. Yeah. He's probably mm-hmm. a three, but in the, but in, in college, he's a four, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, and he's so going to play back to the backs at, uh, at times too, that Dunleavy that didn't to, really do in college. My comparison and you guys, I'm gonna, I predict, I'm going to say this and you guys are going to go, yes. So the Matthew Hurt comparison I've got, not necessarily in body shape, um, but think of a little bit about this guy as a freshman, um, Kyle Singler. See, I think I, I, I was thinking about Kyle Singler, and I think Matthew Hurt is a more sophisticated offensive player than, than Singler was. The Singler kind of had that, um, like he's, he, Singler also played the four, uh, particularly freshman year before K was comfortable having Zubek and Lance Thomas play together. Um, but Kyle was more, I think, um, like traditional three-point shooter, whereas Matthew Hurt, I, I feel like, is more versatile as a shooter. Um, does that? I don't know if that makes sense. But, but I, uh, I, I see that comparison. I see Dunleavy actually more than I see Singler. I just don't think that Hurt is nearly the ball handler. I mean, Dunleavy was, to some extent, a shooting guard or even a point guard in a small forward's body. I think Matthew Hurt, um, I, I don't see the ball handling from him that I, I saw from Mike Dunleavy. Um, and I think the offensive versatility uh, of being able to score inside and out, that's what that's the Singler comparison. That's what reminds me of Kyle Singler and him. I see it. I, I mean, they're, he's probably somewhere in between the two of those. And obviously, if we get either of those players out of Matthew Hurt, then that will be a success because uh, there's there's a few all ACC and all American honors shared between those two guys. And most importantly, uh, a national championship for each. So as always here on the DBR podcast, we want to thank our sponsors, the fine gentleman from bird Campbell, bird Campbell law firm with offices in Texas and Florida. They are a business-focused law firm. They are a couple Duke guys who were roommates when they were at Duke, and they're so excited to sponsor the DBR podcast. We urge you to reach out to them at B-Y-R-D-C-A-M-P-B-E-L-L.com. Bird Campbell means business. So, gentlemen, just a couple days after Duke played Kansas, we stepped down in quality of opponent just a little tiny bit. Not to say every opponent isn't worth taking seriously. Duke played Colorado State in Cameron. Duke hasn't lost to a non-conference team in Cameron 
since before Sam was born or something like that. It was St. John's back in like, uh, I think the year was 1954. Uh, in any event, <laughs> we played Colorado State and Duke beat the pants off of them, 89-55. to 55. It was yet another game where Duke put on an impressive, impressive defensive display, although this time the offense was considerably better. Duke got to 89 points, and that's despite not hitting hardly anything from the outside. Uh, Sam, I will go to you first. What did you see in this? You were at the game, right? Tell us I, what it was like in Cameron that day. Yeah, I was there. It was uh, it was early season Cameron, so everyone was very excited, but most of the students still don't really know what to do yet, and that it just takes a few games for everyone to sort of get in, get into season form. But uh, I, I thought it was a it was a great performance from Duke at home in front of the home crowd and playing, like you said, a CSU team that is not. Um, that is not on Kansas's level. They do have some talented guys. I think their their center was is like one of the best players in the Mountain West this season. So it was good to see Duke get a he, he led a, he led the country in rebounding last year. I mean that's yeah. impressive. So good to see good to see Duke get experience, especially early in the season against you know one of these uh, first game of the tournament type opponents. Um, I don't think Colorado State is taking a, an at large bid, but definitely a a team that can show up on the, you know, uh, 12, 13, 14 um, seed line and, and be a, an opponent that Duke might see early in the tournament. So Coach K is usually intentional about about finding those types of opponents. And and then otherwise, it was nice to see the offense clicking a little bit more than it did against Kansas. You saw more ball movement. You saw more of those um, steals that led to the leak outs and, and big transition points. We were talking earlier about Cassius Stanley specifically in that spot. I'd say the one downside from from these two games, the, the thing that has been sort of underwhelming to me is Jordan Goldwire's performance. I think we expected, maybe the expectations were off, that late in the season last year, he was kind of coming on a lot stronger. And I think it, it we might need to settle for Jordan Goldwire is a great player to have for 10 to 15 minutes a game, not that he is a starter. And I think Coach K... You can sort of feel Coach K wishing that Goldwire was a starter to put next to Trey Jones, and that he could have he could rotate the freshman out, you know, behind him uh, to to sort of motivate them. I don't think that's quite happening, but generally against Colorado State, it was a um, it was a fairly easy win for Duke, uh, sort of going all the way through. Colorado, uh, shout out to Fort Collins, and shout out to DBR listener Michael, who I know lives in in Fort Fun. That that's all I had on that. Donald, what was what was your takeaway from the game? What did you see that you that you liked? I think you know. First of all, we go back to Cassius Stanley. The man it was all over the place. He, I really like the fact that his energy helps uh, motivate and, and and energize the rest of the team. And one thing I think it helped us was in rebounding. I thought we had a much more uh, balanced rebounding effort from everybody. I mean. Cassius Stanley, seven rebounds. Trey Jones, five rebounds. Alex O'Connell, six rebounds. Matthew Hurt, five rebounds. Javin Delorier, five rebounds. I mean, that is a lot of rebounds from just a few number of guys. And and I think even, yeah, but, you know, wait, wait, for a carry you know well, Go ahead. Wait, wait. While you're talking about rebounds, I was a little concer- concerned, maybe too strong. I didn't think Duke rebounded, offensive rebounded all that well. We only got nine offensive rebounds on, uh, we missed like 32 shots. Um you know, so that's that's less than a third. And against a team like Colorado State that doesn't have the athletes, doesn't have the size that Duke does, 
just doesn't have you know the the, the pedigree. Um, I was a little bothered that we you know weren't a little bit better on the offensive boards. That might like, be well. I was going to say that that might just be a a game plan thing as opposed to an execution thing. Yeah, there's also that, and I think also I, I feel like and and this is obviously a small sample size, and we'll we'll probably see this you know a little bit better throughout the season. I think our shots, the way that we shoot them, it's not like they tie themselves up to be offensively rebounded all the time. It's not like we're hitting, it's not like we're taking a lot of threes that are having long rebounds. These rebounds are, you know, in and out or, or just off the rim where if we don't have the positioning, we're not going to get the rebound. And especially if you have a guy, um, you know, was a Nico Cravacho uh, uh, had nine rebounds and is one of the better rebounders. Uh, like you said, he, you know, that positioning is, is hard to get when you're on offense. So I, I'm not too worried about it right now because we're only two games in. I think it's something obviously that we should uh, take a look at and, and kind of, you know, keep in the back of our mind going forward. But I think when it comes to our shooting, we're going to have plenty of opportunities to have uh, offensive rebounds. But I think it's about getting in those positions. And I think as we learn how people shoot and how the balls go off the rim, we'll be in better positions to make that happen. So I'll tell you something that impressed me. I, I thought our half-court offensive execution, and, and look, some of it was coming off of the fast break and, and, you know, when we had numbers advantages, but just in general, I thought our half-court offensive execution was really outstanding, and it showed up in this stat. Um, so Duke was, uh, Duke was 33 out of 47 on two-point shots in this game. Look, we, we couldn't bury a three-pointer really to save our life other than Alex O'Connell, who hit three of them. Um, but uh, we were 33 of 47 on two-point shots. Uh, I, I don't have a calculator in front of me to do the math, but that's better than 67%. That's better than hitting you – know, that's, that's around 70% of your two-pointers. That's Zion-like. <laughs> And, and we saw, I mean, guys, you know, Carey was 5 of 5, and Cassius Stanley was 8 of 11. I mean, we were, we had a number of guys who, who took quality shots and made them, which was kind of the opposite of what we did against Kansas. Now, part of it is opponent. Part of it is Kansas is just way, way better on defense and, and a, a, you know, a much similar matchup to Duke in terms of athleticism and, and you know, skill and all that other stuff than Colorado State is. But still, I, I love that. You know, I, I pointed out in the first game, the Kansas game, the Duke was, you know, venturing around and taking shots that they had no chance of making. It, it, it took us only a, a couple days to completely correct that against Colorado State. And I thought that was a big, big plus for this team and something that, that I feel really good about going forward. So up next, Duke has two games this coming week. Um, uh, you know, somewhat like Colorado State, these are these are games against opponents that you, you would think um, Duke should have a, a decided advantage against. We are playing Central Arkansas and Georgia State. Um, Sam, let me let me go to you first. Tell me a little bit about what you got on on these two teams that Duke has um, coming up. Sure, I, and I think it's it's probably useful to lump them together. Um, so, for reference, if we're looking at the the you know none of the rankings at this point in the season are are super helpful just given that there isn't that much data. Ken Palm does the preseason predictions based on previous year's stats and then sort of changes based on personnel, recruiting rankings, stuff like that. He has Georgia State and Colorado State very similarly rated right now in the in the 160s and Central Arkansas is a lot lower down like in the in the 250s. So let's think of 
Um, that first game against Central Arkansas being one that Duke should win pretty handily. Uh, Central Arkansas has played two games at Baylor and at Georgetown so far this season, and they got completely smoked by Baylor uh, in their in that in that game in Waco. Uh, they're led by a point guard, DeAndre Jones, who uh, is is pretty impressive. And then they have, uh, I'd say that the the most notable thing about Central Arkansas is that they have size that can shoot. So uh, they have a center, uh, Hayden Koval, and then a, a big wing player, Eddie Kayulud, who both of whom are are big dudes. Koval's a seven footer. Kayulud's like like six seven, two thirty ish, and they both have range out to out to beyond the three point line. So you're gonna have to see Duke and sending um, players like Vernon Carey and Matthew Hurt uh, and Javon Delorier out to the perimeter to guard guys like this. So perhaps this is a game where we'll see a little bit more of Jack White. He's probably the the big on this team who's most comfortable defending on the perimeter, at least at this point in the season. And uh, so with that, I'd say Central Arkansas takes a lot of threes. So you'll, you'll see Duke trying to either run them off the three-point line or just be just be in their face when they're on the three-point line to, to try to limit the success of um, of that team. And then looking ahead at Georgia State, the guys from from Atlanta, right? Right, Jason. Georgia State's a Atlanta team. Yes, no, maybe, absolutely, perhaps, yes. yes. Absolutely. Uh, so Georgia State comes in uh, later in the week. Uh, like I said, they're similarly rated to to Colorado State. Um, most notable so far this season from Georgia State, at least as far as I can tell, is that they've got ten guys who um, they're sort of running with. So deep bench. Um, so far, we haven't. I don't think we've talked enough about how Duke has actually had the deep bench so far, sort of unlike it's been in in years past. But um, Georgia State also has a deep bench, so expect them to be subbing guys in and out a lot. Uh, I think the most impressive player for them is a uh, is a junior transfer named Justin Roberts, who uh, went to high school at Finlay Prep in Las Vegas, a, a place that Duke has recruited players from in the past, and that sends a lot of guys to to top programs. So Justin Roberts is uh is one of the stars of this team but again Georgia State because they've got because they've got a deeper bench you're going to see them um you're going to see them spreading out the minutes a lot more and you won't you probably won't get a clear vision that one guy is sort of sort of the star for them unlike Central Arkansas that has three players or four players who who really carry a lot of the load but I think my general take on both of these games is that because they're at Cameron Indoor and and because these teams are not so highly rated earlier in the season, Duke shouldn't have so much trouble with them. I'm curious to see sort of how their each of their strengths for Central Arkansas, the shooting, and then for Georgia State, the depth, uh, play against Duke in these games and see if Coach K is trying to develop certain aspects of the team by having these opponents in Cameron. I'll tell you, I'm bummed that Georgia State doesn't have Ron Hunter coaching them anymore. Um, folks may recall... <laughs> I mean, Ron Hunter, uh, a great character. He's now at Tulane, um, a great character in the college basketball world. And he had that famous moment in the NCAA tournament a few years ago. Um, he'd, he'd hurt his, his ankle or his leg or something. And he, um, he was like, he had to sit on a special kind of stool or something. Uh, and his son, RJ Hunter, they, they, uh, I, I don't even remember who they upset in the first round of the NCAA tournament. They had an upset. And Ron Hunter was so excited when RJ hit the game-winning shot that he like tried to jump in the air, even though his leg was all busted up and he ended up falling on his butt. And he's just a great character, but he's not there anymore. And so Georgia State's a lot less interesting. Georgia State also, by the way, 
Lefty Drysdale coached Georgia State for a while. They've had some really colorful, really interesting coaches there. And um, I wish I had internet access right now. I'd be able to tell you who their current coach is, but I have no idea because I have no internet access. <laughs> Donald, what you got in our opponents coming up this week? I think what I want to see from this these two games is I want to see improvement in the on the offensive end, particularly from three-point land. I think these two teams are going to try and spread the ball out, and they're going to try and pack it in uh, on defense with the zone. And we've seen that at times so far this year, and I want to see how our team reacts to that because that is going to dictate how some of these more uh, uh, formidable opponents will def- will guard us straight up uh, going forward. Like you know, against Kansas, we saw them packing in the lane a little bit with their with their uh, zone and attempt to make it so that we have to shoot from outside. If we can't shoot from outside, then we're not going to win some of these ball games, and we're not going to uh, we're going to have to rely more on our defense, and that's just going to put more pressure on that defense. So I'd like to see us shoot better, uh, point blank and simple. These are two games where we can try and work those kinks out and see if we can get better shooting and get them in better situations, really. I want to see us get in better situations with the ball and have more options to shoot from the wing, inside, spread the ball out. That's what I want to see when we uh, play this week. All right, so there's also a little bit of Duke basketball news, some recruiting news, folks, that we want to tell you a little bit about. Only a couple days after taking his official visit to Duke, 6'6", A.J. Griffin, a, uh, a wing in the class of 2021. We've mostly talked 2020 recruiting till now. A.J. Griffin is in the class of 2021. He went ahead and committed to the Blue Devils. Uh, this, is a, this is a kid who's in everyone's top 10. A lot of people say top five, and there are – there are places out there, there are gurus, folks who watch uh, high school basketball who say that when all is said and done, it is not uh, impossible to believe that A.J. Griffin will be the top player in the class of 2021. Um, guys, I, you know, I'm usually the, the go-to guy on recruiting. So I'll, uh, before I give my assessment of him, I'll see if you guys uh, have done any research. Do you all know anything about A.J. Griffin? I, I toss it to the masses. Which one of you wants to take this? I'm just going to quote Kyrie Irving, uh, Irving first and go another one, another one. That's all I got to say. <laughs> they, they, they are, they are very good now at, at sending out that little clip every time a player commits. And there have been a lot of commitments recently. All I know, Jason is, is pretty much what you've shared so far, which is that he is um, he's well-regarded nationally and is still rising. So we could see by the end of the season that he is one of the very top players or by the end of, you know, next season that he's one of the very top players in this class, but that's not a long time from now, but, but certainly longer than it is for the, for the senior, the rising seniors right now. Yeah. And so I'll tell you about this kid. Um, uh, First of all, he's the only player in the top 10 in the class of 2021 who has recruited any place, uh, who has committed any place, I should say. So, uh, so Duke already off to a fast start. Um, in the class of 2021, already the number one ranked class in the class of 2021. Um, and, uh, and we are in there for uh, about, I think it's four, maybe even five other guys who are in the top 10. Um, uh, there are a lot of folks out there who think that Duke in 2021 may be, um, you know, on the verge of one of those legendary classes, uh, somewhat like RJ Zion, Trey, and, uh, and Cam Reddish, or uh, the, the Jason Tatum uh, that class uh, with Harry Giles. I mean, you know, classes where Duke is literally getting, you know, four of the top 10 players. Um, uh, it, it is entirely possible that we're going to see that again in 2021. And it all begins with A.J. Griffin. Um, and I'll tell you why his, why there are people who say he's going to rise up in the rankings. 
he is unusually young for his class. Usually we hear about guys who stay back a little bit longer, um, uh, you know, who, who want to, uh, they want to play with guys who are younger than them because they'll be better. Um, and AJ Griffin is the exact opposite. He's someone who's pushed ahead a little bit. He is, I think I saw that he, he either just turned 16 or he's not quite yet 16. Kid literally, he's six six, um, and he, he can't even drive yet, or, or if he drives, he, he only started driving very, very recently. Um, and, uh, and that's why a lot of people are saying that, you know, when you project this kid out to when he's 18 and arrives at Duke, like, you know, there's, there's a leap in, in quality of play that you get from most players as they go from 15, 16, 17, 18, 19. Um, and, and A.J. Griffin may really take a leap. But the kid he is right now today, if you looked at him, I mean, like this guy, he is physically very mature. Um, he's already 6'6". He has a fabulous shooting stroke well beyond the three-point line. He takes the ball to the basket with ease. Um, this, this kid's going to be an offensive juggernaut, I think, when he comes to Duke. I'm really excited to have him on board, um, and, uh, and, and I have a feeling he's going to be reaching out to some of those other studs in the class of 2021 and saying, hey, let's go to Durham and form a real super team and make sure that all of us get um, some hardware and some rings before we head off to the NBA. And uh, I am all in favor of that happening. Jason, you mentioned that he, you know, he's still a guy that's kind of growing to his body. Do you see him growing a few more inches or even just kind of uh, adding, you know, is there an opportunity for him to get bigger than what he already is? I mean, certainly any 16 year old isn't done maturing and isn't done getting bigger. Um, and I'll tell you, I mean, watching some of the film of him, uh, just the maturity that he already has in his body, and I'm not saying he's going to be this kind of player, but his game, the way he facilitates for other people, his skills, and the shape of his body, please, you're, you're going to hate me for saying this, I, I see a little bit of 16-year-old LeBron James. Um, I used to, I've seen footage of LeBron at that age, and this kid is not entirely different from that. Um, and, and if he gets a little bit bigger and a little bit stronger, which would seem logical for a 16-year-old, we may be seeing that kind of a player. You know, I'm not going to say he's as good as – not even close, but maybe in that ballpark. Um, boy, have I just – I've just jinxed Jason, guy, haven't I? Jason. Yeah, don't do that. Don't <laughs> but do you that. know what, Jason? This is what I referred to at the top of the show when I talked about leading questions. You ask a question, you know the exact answer, and I'm pretty sure when I looked at this guy play, that is exactly who I said that his game reminded me of, at least in a small way. And so I knew you were going to come up with that comparison. Thank you for proving me right again. <laughs> there you go. There you go. So, so I'm not crazy. You see it also, huh? Yeah, it's 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 obviously a. I don't want to say raw is probably the wrong word to describe it, but it's definitely I see elements of that kind of game there, which is why I think if he does grow taller and fill in his body a little bit more, you might see some of that game, more of that game try to emerge. All right, guys, we've had a lot of fun talking about basketball. We have to get to something a little bit less fun. We won't spend a lot of time on this, people. But the Blue Devils played a very, very good nationally ranked football team. Um, you may have heard of them. They're the Notre Dame Fighting Irish. Game did not go well for Duke. We got our butts kicked. Um, Sam, you were at the game. We don't need to dwell on this for a lot. What did you see? What did you think of uh, Duke playing against Notre Dame. By the way, when was the last time Notre Dame didn't play on national TV? This is on the ACC network. Just bizarre. I, so my general take is that 
the Duke's offense has has really regressed throughout the season, and we saw it on Saturday night. Quentin Harris couldn't couldn't make big passes. Um, the running game was sort of stifled throughout, and Notre Dame on the on the opposite side, Notre Dame was really able to take the top off against Duke a couple times, which which was the difference here. Um, turnovers weren't weren't really an issue for Duke. I mean, they had a couple, but um, but it wasn't as backbreaking as it was against you know like North Carolina. But um, this is one of those games where the opposing team is going to bring a ton of fans into the stadium. It was it was cool because it was because it was a night game and and the stadium was full. It was not cool because the stadium was sixty percent Notre Dame fans. Uh, not that not that we didn't invite them, but um, that's that's just sort of the reality when Duke plays a a program like Notre Dame the same way it is when they're playing a Clemson or an Alabama or um, any one of of that ilk. Uh, so the atmosphere around the stadium was pretty cool. I will say I, I walked around a fair bit before the game. We had a tailgate going on at Fuqua that was a lot of fun with a honestly a, a ton of Notre Dame alums who were there. But uh, it, it was neat to have the the campus sort of lit up for uh, for a big time college football game. There isn't, you know, as you guys know, there isn't so much space for everyone to be tailgating. So if the stadium is expected to be packed, then all the parking lots are full and and people are walking around. So it was cool to be there, but sort of a disappointing game for Duke and and really one where I, I think if, if they had kept it close, the line was only seven or eight points. If Duke was able to keep this one close, then then maybe they could still have hope for a bowl game. But I think this is demoralizing, especially after, you know, coming off the bye week and with another not as talented team, but still a talented team in Syracuse coming in this week. So things are looking things are looking not great for for Duke and bowl eligibility this season. Donald, you got anything on this Notre Dame game you want to, to add? As I said, I had no TV. I could not watch it. <laughs> yeah, it, and I saw very little of it. I, you know, a lot of what Sam alluded to, it, there's not much to be said about this game. I will say I will say two things. One, I really hate Notre Dame. I grew up hating Notre Dame. Um, and but when, they, when we beat them in South Bend a few years ago, it was one of the highlights, I think, of the last 10 years of this program. Having said that, we have to beat teams – like Notre Dame, or at least put up a good showing against teams like Notre Dame. If people want to take us seriously as a football program. And we took a step back with this game, I think. And, and like Sam said, I think games like this are what kind of demoralize you. We need two wins from our final three games to uh, get back to bowl eligibility. Uh, we have Syracuse coming in. We play at wake who uh, has been really good this year and Miami uh, who is surging. Um, who has won their last couple games and, and now have the confidence to think that they could win the Coastal Division. So we're going to have to find our offense really quick. And if we don't, we're going to be at home uh, over the holidays watching everyone else play football. And I'm pretty sure no one on that team wants that to happen. So let's see if we can get it together against Syracuse. All right, guys, we are about to wrap things up. It is time for parting shots. Uh, Donald, I will go to you first. What do you have to tell the folks as we go away? Well, last week was a uh, that basically just ended for me uh, today uh, has been kind of a whirlwind. I have started on Monday uh, here in D.C. My beloved Detroit Pistons were in town to take on the Washington Wizards. So I attended that game the very next morning. I was on a train or not a train on a bus. This is how many this is how many days. I don't even know what day it is. Uh, the next day I was on a bus to New York City uh, to see our Duke Blue Devils 
uh, beat Kansas in the Champions Classic. I then took a bus back at 11 p.m. that got home at 3.30 a.m. so that I could take a 1 p.m. flight to Columbus uh, for the women's national team game uh, in Columbus against Sweden, which was also a classic game, a lot colder than the other games I was at this week. Um, but, you know, that's what happens when you get to Columbus in November. And then I flew to Miami um, where it was homecoming for the Hurricanes. I went to uh, their game against Louisville where they absolutely demolished Louisville. Uh, they scored 52 points in that game. And like I said, they've been surging the last few weeks. So um, four games in four cities in five days. Um, that was my week. Um, it was very tiring, but it was also a lot of fun. I got to see a lot of cool people along the way. Um, the many reunions that we had in, uh, in New York, uh, at the game for Duke, uh, was pretty cool. So, um, I, I will say I wouldn't have everybody try that, but it is a lot of fun to take in as many sporting events as possible. Uh, so why you're able to, I would suggest doing it. You, sir, are a great sports fan and you should be proud of your accomplishment attending all those events compared to those of us who are homebodies and, um, and can't get to all of them. You Sam, had more sleep. Turn. You had, you had way more sleep than I did. I will, I will say that. And there's something <laughs> to be said about that. I'm going to sleep well tonight. There you go. Sam, your turn. What's your part in shot? Well, first of all, I find Donald an aspirational figure in my life. So just, just to, <laughs> just all? to put, just to put that out there, uh, my parting shot. I don't think we talked about, uh, former Duke basketball player, Duke alum Greg Paulus being Greg named Paulus. being yeah. named head coach at at Niagara. Uh, he was an assistant on Patrick Beeline's staff. I assume that Patrick Beeline is 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 uh, Coach yeah. John Beeline's son, right? Yeah. Um, so Coach Beeline, co- uh, second Coach Beeline, uh, second generation Coach Beeline, uh, left the Niagara staff a couple weeks ago. He was the he was the head coach. Greg Paulus was a new lead assistant for that program and he became the interim head coach and now he's the the full-on head coach for Niagara so unlike some of his teammates who have come back to Duke at the conclusion of their playing careers to to sort of start their their coaching lives at Duke we're thinking about John Shire and Nolan Smith Um, Jeff Capel obviously was gone and then came back and has now left again Greg Paulus hasn't been hasn't been back on the Duke bench since he left uh for his season of football at Syracuse, but, and he's, he's bounced around to a number of different programs has been coaching basketball primarily, but just for a lot of different places. Uh, don't know all the reasons haven't necessarily been following very closely, but he is now another of coach K's former point guards who is in a, uh, head coaching position at the division one level. So, um, uh, congratulations to him on, on that sort of probably unexpected, but very big promotion to, to head coach. Uh, yeah, and by the way, um, I, I, I've seen some interviews and some articles about Greg Paulus getting the Niagara job. Um, his first um, sort of foray into, into coaching was with Thad Mata at, at Ohio State. I believe he was a video assistant, video yep. coordinator, whatever you want to call it that, and then he became a full assistant coach there at Ohio State. You're right, he's bounced around to a few different programs, but people have asked him about his coaching influences, and he very quickly says to anyone who asks him about it, he says, it's Coach K and Thad Mata. Both of them have given me so much and explained so much to me. And I reach out to each of the, each of them all the time now for advice. And and you know they are the reason that I'm ready for this um, experience at Niagara. Uh, and and good for you know great for him. You love to see anyone from the Duke family succeeding like this. Um, uh, you know in coaching uh, feels like there are just 
dozens of them all over the place and um and he is the latest and we're really really excited for him and paulus is one of those players that i think we gloss over because of the injuries that he had and and his sort of lessening impact as his seasons progressed he's he was really effective his freshman year when he played with jj reddick and sheldon williams and then by his senior year he was barely playing um, behind Nolan Smith and John Shire and and then freshman Elliot Williams right before he transferred. So I think Duke fans probably write off Greg Paulus maybe more than we should just because, you know, timing never really quite worked for him. The injuries worked against him, but uh, still a guy who I think a lot of Duke fans would recognize and certainly people within the program recognize that he was a kind of a stand-up guy that everyone sort of liked having around. So, you know, wouldn't be surprised to see him back at Duke in some capacity in the future, especially, you know, if things are going well for him at Niagara. So time for my parting shot. And I've got two things I want to bring up. The first one will be very quick. Folks, if you have not seen it, you need to go out there. You need to Google and find the video of Duke women's basketball player, Kira Lambert. um, And the shot she made the other day, it was Duke's first game of the regular season. Kira has missed the past two years, uh, the first two years for her college career. She missed both seasons with, with torn ACLs. Um, I've torn my ACL. It is not a fun injury to come back from. requires a lot of hard work to rehab um, and, and really difficult to get back to, um, you know, the ability to play major college athletics. Uh, that's the whole reason I'm not playing major college athletics right now is because I tore my ACL. <laughs> um, same, no, uh, uh, Jason, Jason, same. Let's just – I. I also have torn my ACL and also I'm not playing college athletics despite now sort of being a college student, sort of. There you go. Uh, but anyway, so Kira Lambert um, in her first appearance in a Duke uniform after two years of missing time, um, uh, it's the end of the first quarter, I want to say, of the basketball game and the women's game. She gets a rebound. She basically, there's like one or two seconds left on the clock. I think she takes maybe one dribble. She throws it up and the first basket since coming back from the injury is a three-quarter court heave that touches nothing but net. Um, And her teammates just go crazy. It is a moment of unbridled joy. And like I say, folks, if you haven't seen it yet, hit that Google thing, hit that YouTube search button and find it because it's a wonderful little piece of video. Um, And it was on SportsCenter. It was uh, the the SportsCenter, um, uh, like their favorite thing of the day the day that it happened. So good so for Jason, her and a really great moment. Yeah. Jason, it was one of the rare highlights that was uh, number one on the SportsCenter top plays and then also number one on the not top 10, not because of what Lambert did, but because of how oh, the that guy in the band, band member slipped and fell celebrating on some sheet music and fell onto the ground. So uh, it, it was the, the band members. Okay. It was a, a nice little laugh, but it was one of those, um, rare occurrences where a pl- where a play makes a highlight for both the good and the bad of sports center's top 10. I, I will only yeah. add, I will only add Kira Lambert, Fuqua student. So she and she nice. and Justin Rob. Yeah. She and Justin Robertson are classmates in the, uh, in the one year master's program designed go. for students who have sort of are doing like continuing studies from undergrad. So uh, we're very not, cool. We're not friends per se, but, but we are classmates. There you go. So the, the, other, the other parting shot I wanted to mention, and we sort of teased this earlier in the, in the show, we talked about it for about two seconds, and I said, we're going to get to that. The ACC regular season started this week, and it included Virginia going to Syracuse, and what they did to the poor Syracuse Orangemen 
Final score was 48 to 34. There are plenty of college football games where the score is higher than 48 to 34. Virginia defending national champions who lost their three best players from last year's team. Um, Kyle Guy, Ty Jerome, DeAndre Hunter, all playing in the NBA now. Um, you would think that uh, that would be uh, that Virginia would take a step back, that maybe Virginia's great, great defense, which which was largely, I think DeAndre Hunter was a major key to Virginia's great defense in recent years. Um, he is no longer there. But lo and behold, they go to Syracuse and they hold Jim Beheim's team to 34 points. Wow, that's not a lot of points. That's a full uh, 40 minutes of basketball, folks. That's less than a point a minute. Jason, um, Jason, the, we yeah. we talked we talked not I, I'm pretty sure it was this last episode. We we remarked at how we were so proud that we were in the ACC and not in the Big Ten. And Virginia and Syracuse just went and said, "Hold our beers," because that was a Big Ten <laughs> score. <laughs> so the the reason I wanted to talk about it though was not to praise Virginia's defense, which is amazing and uh, is absolutely incredible, um, but uh, there are two aspects of it that I wanted to discuss. The first one is a quick question for you guys, and this does relate to Virginia's defense. Um, I, I saw on Twitter, there were some folks that I follow on Twitter who were talking about this. They said, they were saying Tony Bennett is a, just a remarkable coach. This is not, this current Virginia roster is not a roster full of future NBA talent. It doesn't appear to. Um, it is not, you know, a roster full of McDonald's All-Americans. And yet here he is holding... Uh, Syracuse at 34 points. And so the question that was being asked on Twitter was that people were saying, okay, Wake Forest has, most people think, the, the worst team in the ACC this year, the worst roster in the ACC this year. If Tony Bennett was coaching Wake Forest, and we're going to give him you know, a full like nine months or so to really coach these guys up, and, and he's going to be with the team for a while, what would the ACC record, or where would Wake Forest fall in the ACC standings? Most people think that they will finish 15th this year. Um, where do you think they would fall if Tony Bennett was the coach of Wake Forest? Donald, let me ask you first. Um, I'd say eight, but with this current roster, I'd say 10th because he, these aren't, I, it's hard because the Wake, Wake Forest isn't Tony Bennett kind of guys. He may be able to coach them to a certain extent, but he's going to go out and get some Tony Bennett guys that are going to get really get the job done. Uh, so I will say eight just to give him credit because I think he's that good a coach to probably get them into the middle part of the uh, ACC. Sam, what do you think? If we give Tony Bennett the worst team, the worst roster in the ACC, where does he finish? Uh, yeah, seven or eight sounds about right. He would make the tournament. I mean, he would he mm-hmm. would turn them into such a defensive juggernaut as long as they're Division One athletes that I'm like not even super. I mean, he, he they held Syracuse to 34 points. You don't even have to be bad at offense to beat them. Right, you have to be just. <laughs> you have to be. You have to be simply bad at offense, which Wake Forest is. Right, we, we've we've watched a little bit of Wake Forest basketball the last couple of years, unfortunately. But yeah, he would he would coach them into the tournament for sure. Yeah, uh, so I also pegged them like six. I, I actually thought maybe as high as six, six or seven in the ACC. That's how much I think of Tony Bennett, and you guys summed it up perfectly. He is such a great defensive coach. That, that I feel like even without a lot of great talent on, on the Wake roster, he would turn him into a pretty darn good team and probably a tournament team. So the second thing I wanted to mention out of that game, though, was the postgame comments by Jim Beheim, who kind of went off um, and uh, uh, very angry at the ACC that he had to play 
a conference game to start his season. Um, you know, Jimmy B usually does not like to leave the state of New York. <laughs> he has everyone come and play him at his place. And, and in fairness, Virginia did play at the Carrier Dome, but usually the teams he has that comes and plays him early in the season are, are barely top 200 teams. Um, he just likes to start out by playing four, five, six, eight terrible teams to get his team ready. Um, and uh, unfortunately, the ACC has now required him to play a very good ACC opponent to get his team ready. And Jimmy B said it's not fair to start our season with a conference game because conference games are so important. I mean, one game in the standings, um, Virginia losing a home game in the standings, you know, that can be the difference in finishing sixth and eighth or sixth and ninth in the ACC. Um, and, uh, and, you know, that can be the difference in making the tournament and not making the tournament um, because conference record does figure and matter a lot. It, you know, impacts your conference tournament and all that other kind of stuff. So, guys, um, I, I'm, I'm inclined to say that I sort of understand where Bayheim is coming from on this. Um, while I like the ACC having, and I understand with 20 games we have to have games um, in November, I, I could kind of see an argument for, you know, maybe making those games second or third week of November so teams get one or two games under the belt first. What, what do you guys think? Is Jim Beheim's argument a solid one? I think that the that I, I, I appreciate his issue generally. He did get a home game, which is which is beneficial, although it was against Virginia. I think the reason it's not great to have the conference games right at the beginning of the season is that these teams change throughout the year. And even if you just give them until Thanksgiving, right? Like if the Thanksgiving tournaments weren't such a big deal, you could make the ACC season kick off around Thanksgiving week and then that would be fun. But the teams need a little bit of that gelling time before they're actually who they are. So, you know, we saw this last year as a perfect example where Duke was looked like a juggernaut the first week of the season against Kentucky. And then they never really returned to that for the rest of the year, perhaps because other teams sort of caught up. Uh, the same thing could happen here. Virginia had an unbelievable defensive performance the other night. I mean, they'll probably hold another opponent in, you know, in, in scoring in the thirties, but that's not guaranteed. And I, I am sympathetic to Bayheim's point that these teams change throughout the season and, and need a little bit more time to get together before these important games. I did like it before when we, when they first announced it. And I, after going through the first, you know, five days of the season, I really don't like it because the one thing about ACC games is that they sell themselves they shouldn't have to be the first day or two of the season as part of a marquee matchup. And, and really what the ACC did is take a couple of those marquee matchups away from the rest of college basketball fans because they hit them behind games like the Champions Classic. And, and really this first week of the year, people aren't trying to see in-conference games. They're trying to see some of these better teams and how they play, some of the better freshmen in the country, some of the best players in the country. I mean, I think more people probably tuned in to see James Wiseman in Memphis play a couple of games than they did to see Virginia and Syracuse. So uh, I really don't like that they tried to do this because I think in their mind, they were thinking these can add to the marquee matchups that already exist during the first week of college basketball season, but really no one wants to see it in, in conference setup. They want to do it. They want those games to be in December, January, February, and early March. They don't want to see those the first week of November. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I mean, I'm glad that if you look at the matchups, 
and I don't know if the ACC did this intentionally or not, we didn't get too many, you know, really important matchups in terms of the teams at the top of the conference. Can you imagine if UNC had played Louisville or, Mm -hmm. you know, or, or, or Virginia had, had played Carolina or Louisville as the first game of the season, uh, you know, a game that could be really impactful on, on the top of the standings, that would have been wrong. Um, and, and so I, I also think a lot of the reason why they did this was the launch of the ACC network, and they wanted to launch it in a really splashy way with conference games early on. And I'm hoping that in the future they'll, they'll do what we, you know, what all three of us seem to want, which is, yeah, the ACC plays an early conference game, but not the first game, you know, probably the third, fourth, maybe fifth or sixth game, in fact. Um, I, I think that would probably work out better. Yeah, I even think and, it should be after all the, uh, uh, all the holiday tournaments are done. I don't think any college and any conference should be doing conference games before those are because the focus is on building up towards that. It's on those early season matchups like Champions Classic and those, you know, uh, the Big Ten ACC challenges and things like that. And then you get into conference season. I think December is a great month to highlight some of those marquee matchups, especially between Thanksgiving and the holidays. But if you do it before Thanksgiving, I think it gets lost. And I don't think that's what you want to do with your conference matchups. Good call. Good call, my friend. We are in agreement on that. So that is going to wrap it up for us here on episode 172 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. As we said earlier, please email us. We love to hear from you. DBRpodcast at gmail.com. Reach out to us. And if you have something interesting to say, maybe we'll read it in the pod. We can make you famous. How about that? For Sam and Donald, I am Jason Evans. Again, uh, we want to thank our sponsors, Bird Campbell, for for helping to support the podcast. And Duke Band, it's your turn to take us home.